Chapter 9, Human Systems, in which the reason for and the failings of human-created systems are gone into in a roundabout manner. When I was writing my previous book, The Songs of Peter Gray, and really going through my meeting past even more than I ever had before, one thing that really made me think was to remember how constantly the men in our meeting spoke negatively about human religious systems, the camp, or professing Christendom. A few older guys actually just called all Christianity outside our meeting system, and they had not one good or even neutral comment to make about those ensnared by system. How carefully they contrasted these systems, churches, charities, and Christian communities, with God's way, which we were following at our non-church, of course. And how absolutely everything they said and everything I knew about human systems, religious or otherwise, was also very true of my own meeting. Yet I'd been raised to never put it under that spotlight along with the rest. So I hadn't really. To suggest there was anything merely human about what went on in our meeting would definitely be heard as fighting words. But we were no better and no worse than any other human system out there. The thing about a system is that it is human-made rather than naturally occurring. Natural life may grow and repair itself. Things humans create start slowly crumbling and falling down about as soon as they're built. They require constant maintenance instead of being regenerating. They're pretty much just a pile of balanced bricks, and they aren't fond of change. Natural life has growth, movement, and energy at the heart of it. Systems mostly add structure by defining limits. In our country, for instance, we have a legal system. There are innumerable laws, and pretty much all of the laws take away, rather than grant, freedoms. And we're fine with that, because we want the liberty of other less trusted people to be carefully limited. We're so fine with this that we're willing to give up those same liberties ourselves just to make sure the wrong people don't have them. Every system, no matter what it claims, tends towards increasingly becoming anti-change. We need some systems, of course, but systems also have to be carefully limited or they'll subject everyone to tyranny. Tyranny is control taken so far as to be anti-life. And there is a distressing tendency for structure to become tyranny. In fact, positions which grant power and control more than all the other positions open to anyone seem to attract the very people who are most likely to become tyrants. More about anti-life. I'm a classroom teacher, and I have to keep kids in the room, in their seats, out of each other's stuff, attentive, quiet, and off their phones. It's actually really, really hard to do that. Now, if the kids were actually dead, all of those things would abruptly cease to be problems. If we just executed all of them, and they were all propped up in their chairs, gray, stiff, and cold, not one of those problems would trouble the room anymore. Control would be easy. All we'd have to sacrifice would be life itself. But of course, you need life if you want growth. And learning and education are supposedly serving growth. Much of what goes on in school isn't serving growth at all, but is necessary or is thought necessary in order to serve the interests of control, as evidenced by how much easier much of my day would be if students were actually dead. But growth is supposed to be going on and learning, not decay. So I prefer my students to be healthy, alive, and awake. 
Now, with all the Jordan Peterson videos I've been watching lately, I've become more acutely aware of the fact that the 20th century was mainly a secularizing century, which promised to bring a new era of liberty from all the old traditions, customs, and religious superstitious claptrap. What actually happened, obviously, is that the regimes most determined to rid their societies of traditions, aristocrats, religion, and other forms of structure all ended up with everyone under the thumbs of tyrants who brought obscene amounts of structure in instead of removing it all. Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Kim Jong-il, and Mao Zedong spring to mind. These men caused more death in the name of freedom and prosperity and good, supposedly for the future of their countries, than anyone else we can easily think of. Control taken too far. This demonstrates that ideology will serve to do what many accuse religion of in terms of control, manipulation, fear, and power. You don't need a belief in God to be a tyrant. An ideology doesn't need to be a religion to be tyrannical, fanatical, and dogmatic. Tyranny on a small scale. Some people have the misfortune to live with or work under or go to church with someone who is clearly a tyrant, someone who seems to need to impose order, control, and structure so desperately that he clearly puts the needs of the people under his influence far below seeking to maintain the obsessive order to which he is so addicted. It can be a boyfriend, girlfriend, sibling, parent, spouse, boss, elder, or pastor. All decisions are made with a view to power and the power hierarchy. It's all about power and control and little else, though it pretends to be for the common good. There are white knuckles on that steering wheel of what is clearly not even really a car. It generally involves micromanaging, like Stalin taking a personal interest in controlling female Soviets' access to underwear, or Kim Jong-un mandating a very limited number of specific government-approved male and female hairstyles permissible in North Korea. What makes someone fear not having that level of control, feel entitled to take it, and be allowed to do so? My main problem with my upbringing was that as to my father, and as to my meeting, and as to some of my teachers, this kind of teapot despotism was what I lived under. It was most sad when seen in my father trying to gain and maintain the approval of the meeting as to how he was raising his kids, though he didn't have a brethren aristocracy last name. We were new godly, not old godly. It's like with old money, only with godly. In our home, he was really the messenger, passing on the rules and restrictions to us, not because they were good for us, but because he was trying to protect our family from any brethren judgment, and also trying to win our family some respect, despite not having a solid brethren pedigree and last name. Nothing was free from scrutiny. Everything from what shirt I could wear, to my hairstyle, to my music, to my shoes, speech patterns, posture, friends, and entertainment were all carefully, fearfully controlled. They were never good enough. I was trained to just know how the meeting system worked so I could be socially, sometimes physically, punished without anyone needing to even tell me what I'd done wrong. So many of us were raised to this, it seems. We all had to just know, and so we did. The success of this just-knowing training encouraged the leaders among us to present the just-knowing as very natural. If you just knew, then of course it was natural, very scriptural, of God. Only it wasn't. It was hammered into us relentlessly and was nothing if not systematic. No human system is natural, of course, though if they are sufficiently gentle and flexible, they can work very well with natural beings. 
Why are human systems inevitably flawed? They are set up and maintained by people. Every person is flawed and imperfect, and in the course of a given day, caught at various moments during that day, is no doubt going to be doing something stupid, dodgy, or weak. So a system run by a group of such individuals simply can't be expected not to drop the ball repeatedly in the course of a given day. It is our expectation of how they should work, spurred on by how most systems wish to claim they work and the image they try to present, that makes us frustrated when we look too closely at any human system, or worse yet, have personal dealings with or within it. I work in a high school. And so, have a close-up view of how stupidly the education system sometimes tends to end up working. By the time things have moved beyond the planning stage, some people work in a hospital, or for the government, or a huge corporation, or the military. All say the same thing. If you have a close look at it, it's far from ideal. From a helicopter, the city is beautiful. Up close, there's dog crap and used condoms and crime. I would go further and suggest that there are always people who fall through the cracks and people who get very badly served by any system. In fact, most systems have what have to be called victims, either of neglect or exploitation and oppression. My role in life, very often, is listening to and believing those kinds of people—the people who feel they've gotten neglected, sidelined, or actually badly mistreated by various human systems. Too often, systems try to shut people up and discredit them, or try to interfere with people like me listening or comforting. Someone like me being around, with no clear loyalty to the system in question, perhaps watching as light is shone under certain rocks, means I am often perceived as a threat. Certainly, if I talk or blog about some of what I learn, I am attacked for this. If I tell truth that isn't helpful to the system, people see me as a threat. For instance. I can't tell you how much trouble I would get in if I announced in the wrong circles that although schools annually celebrate rising graduation stats and modern classroom techniques, teachers daily see kids with less skill and knowledge than ever before. And as to churches and social programs, if I am going around believing victims, this provides evidence of the simple fact that a system has victims. I think the best thing about making this book has been giving victims a chance to be heard, albeit often with pseudonyms. Can't help but note how many voiceless, forgotten victims are women. Yesterday, I saw someone go on Facebook and angrily claim he'd been kicked out of his brethren group for no good reason, claiming to have secretly recorded his meeting with the elders as evidence of what absolute suckers those Christian men were, and how much they abused their power. He was clearly beside himself. He was trying to get anyone to listen, anyone at all. He was offering to provide evidence that an abuse of power had occurred, and no one would listen for a moment. The people in his own group wanted him to shut up, and people outside his group did that Christian thing where they claimed that as he wasn't in their group, he was nothing to them, no obligation to try to love him. And predictably, people leapt in to comment that with bad language like that, he clearly deserved to be cast out as a wicked person consigned unto Satan for destruction of the flesh. A few people enumerated endless Bible verses to list in exhaustive detail exactly how many ways this man was wrong to not keep this matter private. And then Roy shared the fact that he'd been put away from his group of exclusive brethren for accusing an elder of having repeatedly used foul language in his presence. 
But John said, with language like Roy had used about that elder, they couldn't see how Roy could be a true Christian at all, because a Christian doesn't swear, right? The Bible says. I wonder what they'd have done if he'd called them sons of vipers and whitewashed sepulchers. When one guy came on and said how disdainfully disinterested he truly was in hearing this guy's story, given his language, and endlessly quoted Ephesians, I commented that it sounded like he was quoting Ephesians as an excuse to be Galatians. Ephesians contains an exhortation about foul communication that Christians often use to police not the content, but merely the phrasing of things people say. Galatians talks about men who were putting the people in their assembly back under law, even though Christ had died to free them. Shelley's Story Shelley's story is a very sad window into how difficult it can be to deal with problems within one's assembly. All too often, when someone is suspected or even accused of inappropriateness with children in a church setting, people seem to want to keep a lid on this, to silence or blame the victim, particularly if the man accused is someone in a position of prominence. And they all too often are. And if anything can be seen throughout history, it is that people who want to oppress or take advantage of the vulnerable seem to do whatever it takes to get into a position which will allow them better access to victims and less chance of being accused. Shelley says, I remember the whispering and the sudden outbursts of tears, my mother's stressed look and my younger sister's unexpected departure for a prolonged visit to people I didn't know well and I knew my mother did not like very much. Maybe I would have paid more attention if I had not been going through the trauma of preparing to marry Derek, a man who, while a professed Christian, was not the person many people wanted me to marry. I am not only referring to my parents, but to Rachel and her husband Scott, and also to some of their hey-ho cronies who were influential people in the branch of Plymouth Brethren that I was raised in. Shelley grew up not knowing what had happened to her younger sister, nor the man responsible for the abuse. These things were things she wasn't to know. Questions were discouraged, as a general matter, of course. If there was a problem other than one of doctrine amongst the assembly, young girls were certainly not in receipt of the details. I was used to this, and I accepted it. I wish now that I had been more assertive. Shelley was getting ready to marry Derek, the man who would be her husband and father of her children. She is still happily married to him 30 years later. The trouble was that Derek was new to the brethren and not considered worthy of marrying a brethren girl by Scott, the man with the most power in the assembly, who was married to Shelley's sister Rachel. In fact, when Derek asked for his place at the Lord's table, his brother-in-law Scott made sure Derek was refused, and even once the two were married, Scott insisted upon Shelley's husband Derek sitting in the non-member section in the back of the meeting room on Lord's Day mornings, as Derek had not been accepted to take his place at the Lord's table. If Shelley had been told what had happened to her younger sister and the name of the man responsible, what transpired a few decades later might have been avoided. Many years later, my father was in the hospital. My mother required company round the clock, and I had done the night shift one Saturday night. On arriving home, I roused my two young teenage daughters, as usual, to prepare for Sunday morning meeting. My oldest burst into tears, and my youngest refused to leave her room. They had spent the night trying to work up the courage to tell me that the five-year-old neighbor of my oldest sister and brother-in-law was in danger. 
I was confused. They explained that their Uncle Scott, the leading brother in our assembly, had been touching them and forcing them to touch him sexually for years. As if that was not enough, some of their cousins had been abused as well, and they had discussed it amongst themselves. Never sure what to do, because the children were sure all the adults knew about the abuse and didn't care. The sad truth is that some of the adults did know and did not want to discredit the assembly in any way. Those little girls were abandoned to maintain the reputation of the Plymouth Brethren. After several weeks of tears and anger and many discussions with my daughters about how they wanted this to be handled, I called the police. We all knew what would happen if we simply went to the assembly. Scott would be disciplined. At best, he would be put out of fellowship, and how did that protect any of the other children he would meet in the future? At worst and most likely, Scott and his influential friends would discredit the girls, and we would be the ones disciplined. We decided that the only course open to us was to hand the mess over to the police. We did. Scott was arrested. And after much equivocation on his part, I am guilty, I am not guilty, I might have been too nice to them, they are not liars, but I didn't do what they say I did, he entered a guilty plea and was imprisoned for four months of a six-month sentence. The judge told us that his hands were tied and he would gladly have given a longer sentence, but we were satisfied. It was public, and Scott's name will be on the sexual offenders list till the day he dies. One thing that came out during all of the painful disclosure was the fact that Scott had molested my younger sister when she was a teenager. She had told our father, confident that it would be dealt with. Nothing was done. There was no reprimand, no assembly discipline, no guarding of his daughters and granddaughters from a man he knew was dishonorable. He did not wish to tarnish the reputation of the assembly. It was too hard for him to stand up against evil because at the end of the day, the meeting meant more to him than the girl's safety. My daughters have at least escaped the grip of the Plymouth Brethren Church, but many of their cousins and aunts are still stuck there. For the ones he abused, there is only silence and no help. They are girls, and their value is in their use to men. It is the sad and vile truth. No matter what is said, when a young woman is forced to keep silent about abuse in order to maintain her standing in the assembly, her lack of value is clear. The Plymouth Brethren's stand on outside authority makes it a dangerous church for young women. Sexual molestation of a minor is a crime. If the authorities in the church refuse to call in the authorities, they are also guilty of the crime, both before the law and morally. When a man who is a known offender is allowed free reign amongst the innocent and unsuspecting children and their equally unsuspecting parents, the responsibility for the crime lies at the door of all who knew of his guilt. What Shelley is referring to in the latter paragraph is the fact that in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1, the Apostle Paul asks, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Sadly, too often this verse is used as a means of forbidding brethren people from going to the police, even when the assembly in question is very clearly lacking the wisdom and power to deal with the matter in-house even when the matter isn't being dealt with at all. Shelley's father did not go before the saints, and so later, as a mother, she felt she had to go to the law about it. In fact, she'd have been breaking Canadian law if she didn't. The result, naturally, was that she immediately became very unpopular in her meeting and was seen as a threat to the system. 
Of course, if you take a close look at any large group of people, you are going to inevitably find that there are people who take advantage of others sexually. That's just human nature. One troubling thing, however, is the tendency of abusers to seek positions of power. In the brethren systems, abusers are sometimes dealt with for their actions, and sometimes people even hear about it. What is unsettling is a constant trait connecting the various abusers across the continents and decades. They are legalists. They seek and gain and hold tightly to power. They are about control rather than love, and they are very, very hard to catch and remove. All too often, it's easier to just keep quiet about them. But the price that we pay for that is in the continuation of their abuse of vulnerable people until someone speaks up. What systems are for? Watching a lot of Jordan Peterson's lectures on YouTube got me thinking along these lines. As I've said, a society or a system is optimistically set up and is meant to take care of everyone and everything and to cover pretty much all eventualities. It's a human construct designed to bring order and keep up chaos. But systems don't often really grow, adapt, and change like they need to. History is a long story of a series of systems and societies needing to change and refusing or being unable to do so. They are, therefore, overthrown, conquered, abandoned, or they simply fall apart into chaos. Every single empire there ever was eventually fell back into chaos. Now, chaos was what they were set up to fix in the first place, and they did for a while. They were set up, hopefully, with some idea of the nature of the chaos that needed to be fixed. Rape, murder, theft, cruelty, starvation, disease, and so on. They were set up, hopefully, by people with a unity of goal, whose efforts were, at least at first, not entirely subverted by selfish personal agendas. They were set up, hopefully, by people who knew what their reality was, who could look directly in the face of chaos and problems and tell the truth about them and work to fix them. They were set up definitely by people who were making it up as they went along, who were making what Dr. Peterson calls micro-corrections while working on it all. People comparing what they had hoped would work with what would actually work, and making little adjustments to the system as they went along. Totalitarian, authoritarian societies were springing up one after another right through the 20th century. It seems a frequent occurrence for systems to get hijacked by tyrants, though. But ultimately, tyrants cannot suppress individuality, self-expression, reflection, and inspiration forever. Whether they are Stalinist Russia, Hitler's Fortress Europe, any number of South American, Asian, and African dictatorships, or even a little thing like my rather obscure church culture, this is all readily apparent. What Dr. Peterson went on to describe is very much like what I've been tripping over my own sentences trying to sketch out here. To live a life that has meaning and which improves the world around you, you need to have your eyes on a higher goal than merely maintaining what is already the established, maintained order of things. Because even the best established order gets old and increasingly doesn't work like it should. It can't handle all eventualities, and eventually new eventualities always arise. And it needs to be kept from becoming anti-life at that point. It needs to be corrected in everything it does that isn't life-friendly to be willing to see and tell the truth about how things really are within you and in the world around you. People will twist and censor the truth if it makes the system look like it needs to grow or change. 
So they'll edit their own and others' views of reality to make the system look like it's doing better than it is. You have to be willing to tell the truth anyway. To repeatedly let go of your fondest, most reassuring ideas and dogma, if necessary, sacrificing them to God so that they can be resurrected with new, better life, more suited to what really is the state you're trying to work on. Dr. Peterson sees life as a continual letting go of rigid ideas and systems in order to make upgrades, like someone turning a computer off, changing the memory cards for a new, better, different kind, and then turning it back on to resurrect it as a reborn thing that can now do stuff it couldn't do before. A thing that will need to be upgraded periodically whenever you get your hands on something new, more suited, or necessary in the future. Computers have an operating system like Windows installed on them, But as years go by, the install gets corrupted and unwieldy, needing at least a reinstall, and eventually a newer operating system to deal with new stuff. In more modern parlance, even apps in a phone periodically need upgrades and bug fixes. The idea is that God does this with us all the time, and we do it with our lives too. And that shutting it all down and tearing it apart because you really have to upgrade it stage can be pretty depressing and scary, but this is necessary for individuals, and it is certainly necessary for things like church cultures. Weirdly, after typing this, I went and watched a documentary about the band U2, which explains why they walked away from the earnest, spiritual, ethereal Joshua Tree sound that made so many of us start listening to them in the first place, and promptly made ironic, beepy, snarky, and electronic stuff that was the antithesis to that successful album. Stuff that lost them some fans, but meant they weren't just trying to repeat the success of the album they'd just done, rather like Radiohead with Kid A. Back in the day, I was very into the Joshua Tree, and was more than a bit bewildered by this odd change in direction with their subsequent albums. In From the Sky Down, Bono says, You have to reject one expression of the band first before you get to the next expression, and in between, you've nothing. You have to risk it all. That all rings very true to me, but it's quite a journey. It is, without exaggeration, like being born, again, in a new way. So, why have systems? We recognize what we think of as chaos whenever we encounter nature, stuff we need to control, stuff that's not orderly enough for us. We live in houses with walls and doors, most of us, because we don't want snakes and deer and wild dogs in our kitchens checking out what we're cooking for supper. We don't want ants in our nostrils or bees in our armpits. We want to keep life out to some degree. We want control over what sort of life is in and which sorts are out of what. In the Bible, much of the story starts in a garden, which is, of course, nature not simply being allowed to run riot, but rather growing within a kind of structure or scheme. Gardens have rows, beds, paths, and walls. Gardens showcase life and make it possible to walk around looking at it. I'm thinking of Winston Churchill's huge and ornate garden, tended long after he had died, which I walked through a few summers ago. He's long dead. His garden is still being tended and producing carrots, tomatoes, and flowers, and eggs, because chicken live in a coop there. In nature, creeks, cliffs, stands of trees, bushes, and thickets keep you out, but garden paths take you down them and show you the flowers. Is a landscaped, controlled yard filled with greenery man's natural habitat? Life within a structure? And what is cancer, by contrast? 
life-run riot, cells dividing out of control and not staying with the plan. Individual cancer cells are life, but they can kill the organism they're growing in. A marriage, a family, a school, a church, a town, these are all systems that we are quite content to use unless a tyrant takes them over and starts stamping out stuff that smacks of life. But human systems are set up by humans. They are founded in and run by the flesh, so they fall short, yet are filled with hubris nonetheless. They demand total loyalty for imperfect results. What happened when Jesus was tortured and executed for not towing the line to the systems of his day tells us an awful lot about this. The cross didn't just show us that God loved us. It also showed us what human religious and governmental systems, as well as the common men, do with people who walk with God. Growing up, the brethren religious system our ecclesiastical forebears had created was always contrasted with this evil world and its inadequate systems of coping with trouble. This world had things like drugs, adultery, extortion, theft, poverty, famine, AIDS, child molestation, teen pregnancies, and rape, and it was failing to fix them. So never mind UNICEF and the government and the police. You stayed in the meeting. You stayed in at night and off the streets and out of the places of entertainment and limited your time and social movement to that tightly controlled little meeting circle. In turn, it would provide you with everything you needed which you might otherwise have had to try to get from this world and ensure that none of those above-mentioned problems touched anyone within the meeting. It was supposed to work like that anyway, this God-pleasing, necessary meeting system within which we lived. Of course, we were encouraged never to view it as a system, and certainly not a man-made, merely human one. Systems were only the natural, flawed efforts of well-intentioned but fallen men. We were plugged into God's stuff. We weren't slaves to man's ideas. We'd been freed by God's. But we actually had all of those above problems among us in some form or other anyway. Being a fleshly system, ours fell short, like any other, and we had a lot of structure. A host of seemingly arbitrary restrictions were part of my childhood from birth. And was my upbringing good? Well, I write to you now as someone who learned to tie my shoelaces and use a toilet, sink, and shower properly, as someone who can read and write and almost do math. I do not go around punching people, wrecking stuff, or stealing things. I'm not addicted to things, and I grew up knowing what the words in the Bible were. By that standard, my upbringing more than did its job. Every child grows up within a system of order, a socializing pattern of some kind. Think about this next time you take your sneakers off when you come home and lace them up when you're leaving. It's certainly not all bad. Socialization For every child, socialization means something important, that they be taught to curtail somewhat their comparatively infinite capacity to enjoy themselves and transgress all social boundaries. Notably, children are taught to be able to turn their natural play impulse on and off the way they are taught to wait until they are in the toilet before they empty their bladders. Children who can't learn to not immediately act upon every single impulse they have end up being excluded from social interaction. They don't learn things. No one wants to play with them either. The thing is to give children what skills they need in order to get by in social situations and systems that are going to be healthy for them. But it's important that children not be abused by any system parents entrust them to. 
Right into the 20th century, North American residential schools for Aboriginal peoples crushed almost everything that was natural out of Native children. Their names, their language, their stories, and even things like showing affection for or spending time with parents and siblings were simply removed from their childhoods almost entirely. They had everything that would have been natural utterly uprooted rather than, shall we say, pruned, weeded, and trimmed a bit. They were having everything that white people saw as Indian stamped out of them, even connections to their native families. Systems are things we have to live with. We benefit from them, so it's more a question of exactly how they are used. What kind of stuff and how much is squashed out of kids right along with picking their noses in public and wetting their pants at dinner and taking food from other people's plates? Which particular people, with their own agendas, are allowed to tack stuff onto what kids learn, along with the alphabet, addition, and subtraction? The church system I grew up hardwired into wasn't as severe as a residential school, of course. It was my parents stamping out all 20th century Canadian culture I'd picked up at school, rather than my government stamping out an ancient culture I'd started to get from my parents. As a kid, I felt very keenly, however, that I was to a large degree being forced to live under a deeply unnatural, relentlessly joy-killing system. I knew that people were far from candid about exactly what the system was doing or who was driving it. And I wanted answers. I wanted some human accountability. I wanted people to admit, to be clear, out loud, in words, about what was being expected of us. They didn't like being asked this. It was God who was driving, they claimed, so don't ask them much of anything. They were just the messengers. It didn't appear that way to me, especially when, by the time I'd reached adulthood, I knew firsthand that my culture hadn't delivered sufficiently, neither in providing me with what I needed, nor in ensuring that its own weren't touched by the aforementioned world problems. But I'm not saying that children should live with no limits of any kind. I'm saying that my upbringing was 100% about limiting urges and a vibrant life that was never really allowed to happen anyway. Limits can be healthy. So why have structure at all? You need it to have order, to get somewhat predictable and reliable results. You need the madness, and you also need a method to your madness. You need living energetic kids in your classroom, and you need to make them spend some of their time staying in their seats. You need plant life in your garden, but you need to do some pruning, weeding, and trimming. Jordan Peterson, again, explains that in order to play a game, you have to embrace so very many kinds of limits that the fun is in overcoming them somehow. You win by moving the only chess piece you can sensibly move in the only way you're allowed to move it, and only when it's your turn, thereby vanquishing your opponent and impressing everyone looking on with your ability to work inside that system without breaking a single bit of the structure built into it. It has to be possible, though, to move, to maybe even win. Art works like this also. Jack White, in It Might Get Loud, speaks eccentrically about how much he uses limits, how much he needs to rail against petty technical problems and little obstacles in order to make music at all, let alone good music. For example, he keeps playing old, cheap guitars that need to be constantly tuned and fixed when he could easily afford more professional, reliable gear. In his band The White Stripes, he was backed only by a single person playing simple drum parts. He fights with his guitar and sometimes leaves blood on the strings. All this makes his performances what they are. 
It's not the sound of a confident man casually producing a carefully rehearsed performance on perfectly calibrated gear, the success of which performance is a foregone conclusion. It's not the sound of an incredibly comfortable, laid-back man letting his creativity bubble out of him when it feels ready. It's the sound of a man struggling with and raging against the limits, pushing himself and taking risks, someone trying really hard for you, working to make things work, not phoning the performance in. Struggle can be very good if it's getting you somewhere, rather than extinguishing you utterly. Because good art is often doing what you can, somehow, despite there not being really many choices. I think that's the main reason why so much bad music is being made nowadays. It's too easy. It doesn't cost much, it isn't difficult, and pretty much anyone can do it anytime they want, without taking a lesson. I think this is why George Lucas wowed everyone with his first Star Wars movies, with his crazy battleship model parts glued to ping-pong tables lined up in a row, and his cameraman driving by in a pickup truck, leaning out the side window with the camera as fireworks were setting off on cue. The obvious question was, how on earth did Lucas manage to do any of this? I mean, at all. It shouldn't even have been possible for another ten years or so. Decades later, with a virtually unlimited budget and fantastic array of technical doodads, the obvious question about anything Lucas then went on to create was, you could have done absolutely anything you wanted. Why on Naboo would anyone choose to do what you did? So limits of the right kind can be very good. Limits of precisely the wrong kind, as we sometimes encounter when we run up against a system that wants to control us when we need a bit more liberty, are a serious problem. When should you work within a system set up by other people, and when should you decide to go lone wolf? When you slot yourself into a structure, the important question probably is, what do you want to do? The structure needs to not only allow, but help that. Otherwise, if it's not helping, it's got to go. Especially if it's not letting people grow. I live like this. If you leave behind your Christian system, what are you then? Can you still be a Christian? Can you still follow Christ all by yourself? Doesn't this going forth unto him without or outside the camp constitute a clear disobedience of rules that are in the Bible? I mean, it's got to, right? We can't just be free from the scrutiny of each other, of being accountable to the church of our choice and limited by them, surely? But I live like this. It works. I deal with God. I don't have to ask a pastor if it's okay before I write this. I have not signed a church membership agreement to abstain from alcohol and R-rated films. I serve God rather than any of the myriad church systems out there. I have Christian friends, and we hold each other accountable. We have a community, a network. We have each other, though we live in different cities. Just like any other Christian community, my network includes only some Christians rather than the whole church, unfortunately. But I can tell you that there are limits to what my Christian friends will support and believe in. I am very aware that I am freed by the work of Christ, and I am equally aware that I am very much in the hands of a God who can be angry at times, but I deal directly with him, and I feel that, though my job is different as well as my origins, that I should actually try to live in this world like I think Jesus Christ would want me to, even a bit how he would live himself if he for some reason had my life to live out. But I've been repeatedly told outright by Christians that my job isn't to imitate Christ because I'm not him, but to follow the leading of a godly pastor at a nice church because I'm not him either. I disagree. 
I've never dealt with a church system that does anything but punish and resent me eventually if I get Christ-like in any way which surprises them or does anything but praise and maintain their church system. The thing is, you can set your own limits and follow Jesus based on reading the Bible, praying, and paying a certain amount of attention to your own life and what tends to happen in it. And you can follow Christ without needing to be guided by someone with a title like reverend or pastor. If you're finding that other Christians are really not helping, you really can follow Christ yourself. You may find you leave father and mother and pastor to do it. In fact, you might, as I found, actually really need to do that. That it's not working until you do. I think the point of us being down here is to connect to others, but this doesn't mean you might not need to draw away for a time and get your Christianity together a bit before plunging into interactions with them. We're a pretty haggard, odd, contradictory bunch, after all. And I think you should interact with us as much outside church stuff as in, to be honest. Making Order You can make and maintain quite a bit of order, this classroom teacher can tell you, without needing a whole lot of systematic, heavy-handed limiting of people's rights. And it can all be fairly flexible and friendly, especially once people believe that they will actually benefit from the amount of structure you decide is necessary. No one needs to die or be vaporized or anything. In fact, any good parent, coach, director, or other person who tastefully, almost invisibly adds some order to any kind of people chaos can tell you that what you want is a lively dance between impulsivity and plan, whim and policy, energy and restraint. One of the things that marks a professional is the ability to make snap decisions that roll with the punches, ones that make sense given sudden and unexpected turns of events. Kung Fu style, the giver of structure may be, at times, utterly inflexible, an impassable wall to certain misbehavior. Yet the same person can abruptly decide to turn to water and flow around and through obstacles, snapping into a new form of structure in the blink of an eye. This is one of the moves that makes an adult someone who children can't get around, the switch. I have found that to a large degree... Once you remove yourself from the watchful eyes of your parents and church, you are being your own parent, your own pastor, and you should be a good one. You need to provide your days with the life, the inspiration, and the engagement, as well as the plans, limits, and policies. If you loathe yourself and feel nothing but disrespect and disdain towards you, an attitude quite at odds with the one God has towards you and commands everyone to have towards you as well, you can become your own tyrant. So don't do that, obviously. Be kind to yourself. No hating. People who think the Bible is only intended to inspire caution, order, ethics, rules, and structure are missing a whole lot of it. I know it's the Bible and everything, but sometimes even people in the Bible have to say, you know what, why not? It's not always, um, no. People God blesses really do say, why not, sometimes in the Bible, because this is part of what living people do. They get ideas. They get inspired, sometimes by the Holy Spirit himself. It's not always deeply underlined in Bible studies that sometimes God was telling people all the specifics and was looking for obedience, but other times decisions were being left to the people's own discretion. The tabernacle had to be a certain number of cubits wide here and made of specific stuff, but the decorations and fancy work, the exact nature of the cherubim on the mercy seat, 
Sometimes they were just told to do some. It's like when God let Adam decide what the animals were going to be called and watched him name them to see what names he'd choose. You know what? I think I'm going to name that animal a jujube. No, wait. I'll call it a zebra. Yes, a zebra. To rhyme with Deborah in Britain and Debra in America. Once those countries exist, yep. Amen. In Canada, they will say Z for the letter of the alphabet like the British, but call this animal a zebra like Americans. Canadians will be weird. For sure, but polite. At least, compared to Americans, anyway. Yeah, but how polite will that be, really? Some will be slightly more polite than some Americans? Hardly anything to brag about. Yes, but what are you going to call that one over there with the neck? A turnip, no, an ostrich. Okay, interesting. We'll go with that, then. In fact, quite often, God honors stuff like that kind of follows our decisions, collaborates, like a parent letting a child choose which kind of ice cream the family will be having after supper. God doesn't make all of our life decisions for us, refuses to do that, in fact. Try to make him and see. You will wait until the grave for him to cooperate. So you will have to decide various things in your life. God will leave it up to you to decide things, and he won't simply tell you what to do every time, no matter how hard you ask. And clearly, as part of living, sometimes you get it wrong. And that is often okay. You can just go ask God, why didn't you like that? Why didn't that work out? Cain, for one, didn't handle things in this way. You can notice that things are working out well for the next guy over, and you can go over and try and figure out what he's doing right. Or you can get a rock and go murder your brother for being different from you, because you don't want there to be two sides to the thing, and you feel the need to control the situation and exert your own influence with that rock or a Bible verse. One interesting thing is that when we are juxtaposing order and chaos, it is chaos that has more to do with life and possibility. Now, religions other than Judaism and its sequels tend to envision the cosmos being made of chaos to begin with. What we would think of as empty space existing before everything came into being, they would think of as a chaotic mess of stuff, crazy, unbridled, unformed energy and possibility waiting to be molded into what we know now. In their mythic stories, chaos stuff is taken and formed into something more stable so that life can last and thrive in constant, diverse forms in it. To this way of thinking, chaos is a breeding ground for life. The creation myths of ancient cultures are about there already being lots and lots of stuff there, and order being imposed upon it. Dragons and warriors or mothers and fathers and children war, and they are killed and dismembered, and their dismembered members become continents or mountains or whatever. Things like that. To the Judeo-Christian mind, and to the modern scientific mind as well, really, The cosmos was at first nothing, emptiness. In a time before time existed, for the longest time, all that there was, was nothing. That's what was. All the energy, inspiration, and possibilities were in God's head, were a gleam in his eye, so to speak, waiting to be spoken into reality, perhaps with a big bang sound. That's Judeo-Christian wording. 
To a more scientific heart, one might choose to say, the mathematics were waiting to happen. The equations, formulas, and numbers were gazing eagerly upon the opportunity to have molecules to which they might apply themselves. In the story I'm used to, God adds thing after thing to all of the nothingness until the earth and the universe are teeming with things he thought of and spoke into ordered forms. In the very latest scientific creation myths, he brings all the life from what is already on the earth. He brings it forth from the sea, from the primordial ooze, the mud, the dust of the earth. He speaks order into the chaos, life and order doing a dance together. I am afraid of nothing. Growing up, what was missing was the life. The order, the control, the structure, the limits, we more than had covered. I think the worst thing that ever happened to me growing up was all the nothing. I tell my students now that with where we live in darkest Canada, in all likelihood, unless they work pretty hard, nothing's ever going to happen to them. Really nothing. Nothing very bad, if the lives of people in the whole world are used to put things into perspective. And if they're not very, very smart, hardworking, and or talented, nothing terribly good will likely happen to them either. A lot of people leave where they grew up and go to another place, hoping that something will have happened to them just by doing that. Italy, Spain, Israel, Ecuador. They think going somewhere else actually makes them different, more interesting. Apart from perhaps an interesting meal or view they can photograph, often all that happens is they find they are still themselves, but geographically somewhere else for a time, and nothing much besides their going there happens. Travel will often just spread people over more planet. It can be broadening and thinning. I don't fear chaos as much as I fear nothing. I need God to show up and do things too, around, with, and through me. I need to be inspired. I need to do things myself. I need to become a better me. Human systems are often built by and for people who are terrified by the very idea that something or someone somewhere is going to possibly get out of control and do something. Because this happens so rarely in our Western culture, it makes big news stories every time someone does anything much at all besides upgrade windows or get a new eye thing. I'd like to imagine that my life is going to be memorable. I think it is a far more likely fate that nothing much will ever happen to me. Joining and serving and changing human systems doesn't seem to be a sensible thing in which to put my hope. And systems I have been adjunct to seldom provide much beside a celebration of being part of them. Perhaps a warm feeling that things are well ordered in that system, that committees have been tasked, issues tabled, and items spoken to. Or, more often, committees have been tabled, items have been spoken to, and tasks issued. Sometimes, tables have been spoken to and tasks itemized while committees were rolled over, out, and into the next pay period. But I haven't actually been part of very many systems at all. And I think it's safe to say I've pretty much never had a positive or helpful group experience of any kind. Everything good that I ever saw involved at most three people, really. And none of them had ties on or official titles. In my experience, most systems are uncomfortable with much of anything happening very quickly. Certainly anything happening unexpectedly. It all needs to be planned and budgeted and documented with lots of notification, strategizing, synergy, and hearing people's concerns first. 
It can't just be stuff going around happening, and it needs to involve a ridiculously large number of people. And these people tend to get very uppity if any lone person starts succeeding at doing something that they had already appointed a task force to look into the feasibility of raising awareness regarding possibly doing at an opportune point in time at some juncture in the future, perhaps starting next fiscal year. Human systems seem to me to be primarily about making sure all manner of unpredictable, uncontrollable things probably won't ever happen, and then planning endlessly around what are manifestly non-events, things that never become any realer than all the talking and maybe a zippy acronym and colorful bracelet or T-shirt. Oh, and an awful lot of congratulating people if they've so much as brought donuts. Let's take a moment, folks, to really just pat ourselves on the back. Clearly, it's value added for the entire virtual team at this point in time. Moving forward, it's key. Check the optics. I guess what I'm asking, in my snarky rhetorical way, is where's the life, the inspiration, the action, the involvement, the actuality when people build their systems to make the world a better place? I see order and structure and celebration of same, but little life. If anyone has an idea. It gets fossilized as an acronym and never gets any realer than that. I guess this is why, when I get an idea to do something, I don't check first to see if there's an official church, municipal, or government body already appointed who only get to do that good. I just do things myself. At the school where I first worked, I had a class web page. It worked great. It had all the due dates and handouts and stuff. I paid an annual fee for my own domain name and kept the whole thing updated and going myself. It was simple and easy, and it worked well. A couple of years later, the school board I was then working at sent around someone to introduce us to an exciting new initiative. They were planning on hosting and facilitating teacher web pages. They were excited. We'd all have web pages. Think of the possibilities. They wanted us to be very excited. We stared at them politely. Years later, almost none of the teachers who sat in that room have web pages. Their stuff was too limited, limiting, and controlled for what I wanted. So I just continued paying for my own hosting and domain name and making my own website. One of the first things that happened once that school board got the lumbering infrastructure of its colossal teacher web page initiative going was that one of their automatic blocking thingies blocked my class website. I had to email them to get it unblocked, which they eventually did. This problem recurred many times. Bureaucracy exists. Government bureaucrats tell me to stop things, bad things, bad people. When bureaucracy runs amok, though, it stops almost everyone and everything. We live in societies and move in communities which really, really want to spend all of their time creating one-size-fits-all fixes and structures. If, like me, you find through no fault of your own that you aren't typical, and therefore the typical fixes and structures do not serve you, but serve more to point up the narrowness of vision and planning seen in the systems themselves, you might just have to try a new approach. One size fits me, and I know what size that is. Thank you very much. And then, hopefully, you won't have to worry about fighting with yourself and splitting into two warring people who won't speak and are fighting for say over the same turf. Hopefully, you won't have a division. Division. Now I'm going to talk about when systems split acrimoniously into fragments, war on a tiny scale. Church divorce. This happened several times in our brethren group in my life. 
We seem very frightened of allowing free discussions, but fear it might turn into gasp argument. But Neil Postman, in The End of Education, points out that when we stop arguing, blood happens. He cites how, once we stopped being able to argue, the American Rebellion or War of Independence, the American Civil War, two world wars, Korea, Vietnam, and the Gulf War all occurred. We talk, we argue, and if that breaks down, things get violent. In our Tunbridge Wells Plymouth Brethren, we stepped on and stifled free discussion and alternate points of views so much that when debate tried to happen, it got squished and blood happened. War. Church division. And when a bunch of our people went away to another church group or formed a new one, everyone who stayed seemed kind of angry or like they'd lost respect for each delinquent person. They said they were saddened that Fred had walked away from the Lord. It seemed to me like they were angry that Fred had dared walk away from our group, from us, like Fred had escaped us or whatever it was we were in the grip of, or both. In The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Huck and Jim lose their raft when they collide with a riverboat, and Huck finds himself being looked after by some very aristocratic, well-born folk with a well-structured, perfectly organized plantation or estate. The Grangerfords are extremely affluent and have many servants, and the whole family tends to sit around in the shade and eat and drink the very best food and beverages. It seems perfect. But what soon comes to light is that there are fewer and fewer living Grangerfords each year, because Grangerfords are dying due to a feud with another decent, nice, aristocratic family named the Shepherdsons. Huck doesn't know what a feud is, so he asks Buck, a 14-year-old Grangerford. He's told, A feud is this way. A man has a quarrel with another man and kills him. Then that other man's brother kills him. Then the other brothers, on both sides, goes for one another. Then the cousins chip in. And by and by, everyone's killed off, and there ain't no more feud. But it's kind of slow and takes a long time. Twain depicts the feud as thoughtless, meaningless, and nasty. Huck doesn't understand any of it, but he understands that people hate each other and are killing each other until there's no one left standing. And there's nothing anyone can do about it, so long as the people involved keep participating, so long as vengefulness and wrath are blindly followed, and forgiveness and mercy are just words. And he understands that he's suddenly in danger of getting hit by the bullets that are flying, and he knows he's suddenly losing good friends for no good reason. At first, the estate is a safe haven for Huck, who's just lost everything and needs food and shelter. Soon, though, just as apples come into season, the feud blossoms and a lot of very indiscriminate bullets are flying everywhere. The Grangerford Haven quickly becomes more dangerous than any empty stretch of river could ever be. By the time Huck flees the scene, Buck, and almost everyone else Huck knew, is dead. All because a Grangerford girl and a Shepherdson boy have run off together, having arranged the elopement by leaving notes in Bibles at church, the one place both families are going to see each other and not fight. While at church, they listened to sermons on loving one another and forgiveness. It was kind of like that for far too many new people who came out to our group only to get caught in the crossfire in one of these ecclesiastical feuds. We had Hayhoes and Allens or Van Hofwigens and Greys or Wilsons and Shorts rather than Hatfields and McCoys, but still, shots fired. Keep your head down and light out for the hills. Our Feud 
My own waking up to the reality that things were going heavily off the rails in my group was really given a kick in the pants by my experiencing our own church feud. We called them, euphemistically, divisions. They were, I've used past tense, but they still go on, they never stop being about to happen again, the same thing as the feud in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, except we mainly fight only at church. The whole congregation would eventually split into two warring church groups meeting at separate street addresses. Each side would pretend to have won and to have expelled the bad guys, claim to have been forced to do what they did for God. Both would claim to have been right, and then would act like the people on the other side of the division were kind of dead, and no one much ever seemed to mourn anyone. If you saw people you used to go to church with at the grocery store, especially in the first five or ten years, often you simply pretended not to know one another, or you talked to them like someone you used to know, but not another Christian you might ever talk to on purpose again. The whole us-against-the-world conspiratorial attitude was gone in those cases, because now you were no longer us, not to us anyway, and we became them, too, to you. Us and them versus them and us. So you acted like there was some inexplicable reason you were no longer alive to one another, some unfathomable mystery you yourself certainly weren't involved in, some irresoluble knot that could never be untied. We used to talk. But now, we didn't really talk anymore. Weird, wasn't it? Downright mysterious. No one could explain it. The Bible told us to mark, mark them that, that cause divisions and walk not with them. Easy. It was always the other side that we felt had caused the division. So we didn't walk with them. In fact, we divided from them to avoid walking with division causers. How could we walk with people who would have had any part in dividing the Lord's people, right? We didn't feel that in so doing, we were ourselves causing division, or creating and maintaining a state of dividedness, any more than we'd done that when we announced that all of those people were no longer at the Lord's table because they'd refused to agree to Brother Gromit and Van Foot's assembly decision to kick out Brother Blackmore and anyone who didn't want him to be kicked out. If you lived far away, the side you agreed to take was easy. Did you submit to these guys' right to hijack the whole church? Or did you rebel against divinely given authority and actually say they had no right to do that? More often than not, people were kicked out or walked away to form another group because they didn't like the kicking out of someone and didn't like being told to shut up about not liking all the kicking out. So they got kicked out themselves. And if they walked out of the meeting room or got a new place to meet on Sunday mornings, the kicking out was framed in terms of simply acknowledging that person's rebellion and having walked off in independence. This is all about God, right? I've done a fair bit of reading about how the, at first, only slightly more strict than my own Tunbridge Wells Brethren group, the Taylor Hales exclusives, started in the 1960s, no doubt in response to the spirit of the 1960s, to transform in about 10 years into a full-blown cult. What stands out is that it used divisions to get there. There are no formal authority guys of any kind in most exclusive brethren groups, yet still someone can always informally take over the whole place. Phil says tongue-in-cheek about his own open brethren group, We didn't have any officials at all, except for the resident dominant alpha brother, which many meetings had, with various levels of attack strength. With the eventually called Taylor Hale's Brethren Group at first pretty much indistinguishable from the one I was raised in, it was a guy named James Taylor Jr. 
not the singer, seeing fire and rain, he decided in September of 1960 that true Christians, by which he meant only members of their brethren, should no longer eat or socially associate with anyone who wasn't a member in good standing. As of September in 1960, they could no longer eat in the same room as people like us, Christians or otherwise, not even in restaurants. This came to be called the eating matter. What happened upon announcing the eating matter as group policy was they had a big division, and everyone who did not leave the group had proven something. They, at least, would be putting up with this sort of crap. The ones who left mostly went on to form almost identical new brethren groups who remained free, however, to eat at McDonald's, could exclusively break bread, cutting out sullied people like you and me, but also stop and eat a happy meal right inside the restaurant with the unbelievers on the way home if they wanted. But back to 1960. The transformation of the Raven Taylor Hales brethren from more or less what we TWs were to what they are today got underway. Decree after decree after decree was duly decreed by Mr. Taylor on a weekly basis worldwide. And every week, the Raven Taylor brethren, as we then called them, transformed a bit more. When Taylor decreed that instead of having evening meetings twice a week and three meetings on Sunday, all meetings would now have evening meetings every day of the week, this happened. When Taylor decreed that all brethren men must shave their facial hair, including sideburns, that day, all men shaved their facial hair, including sideburns. When he decreed that no brethren home could have a pet, without or outside of heaven are dogs, Revelation 22 and 5 is very clear, that week all the pets were euthanized. Grieving children were told the animals were being put down because there would be no one left to feed them when the rapture came, perhaps that very night. When Taylor, an alcoholic, decreed that whiskey be provided for all visits by elders, whiskey became a mandatory staple in all Taylor Brethren homes. One never knew when elders might visit, and alcoholism then became the problem that it still is among the Taylor Hales Brethren today. When J.T. Jr. decreed that no Brethren group could read fiction, The Little House on the Prairie, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, The Wind in the Willows, Animal Farm, 1984, Fahrenheit 451, and all the rest of them were burned in backyards that evening. When he decreed that couples under assembly investigation were to abstain from sexual intercourse, couples in this situation routinely began to be questioned as to their bedroom habits during the period of time in which they were being investigated. It became part of how assembly discipline worked. When Taylor decreed that no brethren person could attain post-secondary education, members immediately dropped out of university and college programs or were excommunicated and shunned by their very families, having been thrown into brethren limbo. When Taylor, or even local elders, said couples couldn't marry, in one instance because the girl was hearing impaired, so marrying her would constitute being unequally yoked with a believer, the marriages didn't happen upon pain of excommunication. When Taylor decreed that members whose spouse got kicked out ought to divorce the shunned spouse, divorces started to happen. When Taylor decreed that members had to formally cut off all ties to friends and relatives who weren't members, letters were sent informing these friends and relatives that future correspondence would not be answered. Often, these friends and relatives were Christians and gathered with virtually identical brethren groups from the other side of some division or other in the past. James Taylor Jr. decreed things for almost 20 years and then died. He had been, by mysterious coincidence, chosen by the Holy Spirit when none other than his father, James Taylor Sr., had died. 
His father, James Taylor Sr., had been responsible for things like having 40% of the hymns edited out of the Hymns for the Little Flock hymn book as being inconsistent with the truth and creating a 1932 edition. Taylor Sr. died in 1953. Taylor Jr. died in 1970. After Taylor Jr., another alcoholic named James Symington held power for a time. Symington was a pig farmer from North Dakota. There was a lot of kicking out and infighting, and various coups were always going on during this period. When Symington died in 1987, a quiet accountant named John Hales, previously kicked out by Symington, ran things globally for just over a decade, only for the Holy Spirit to coincidentally choose his son, Bruce Hales, to replace him when he died. The Hales leaders introduced private brethren schools and the banning of most electronic devices, but encouraged more political involvement in supporting conservative politicians. The involvement was solely through campaign contributions and lobbying government officials as voting and holding public office were still forbidden. The Hales leaders refocused the movement to be increasingly about real estate and money. With the advent of the Internet, a whole lot of things that were done privately, careful to tell it not in Gath, have come to light and actually hit online news sites and newspapers. For example, here is Rosie Strode reading the newspaper article she wrote for The Guardian in 2007. Growing up in the exclusive brethren meant missing out on a lot of things other children took for granted. It meant no TV, radio or recorded music, no pets, parties, school outings, plays or sports, no cinema, novels, magazines, no makeup or haircuts and strict clothing rules. I was used to living a life different from those of my friends. Even so, it struck me as strange one morning when I was eight years old that mum wasn't trying to get me ready for school. Instead, she was frantically stuffing clothes into suitcases. She told me I was going away. Downstairs, I saw my elderly grandmother wringing her hands and protesting, but she was ignored as I was pushed through the front door and my hand taken by one of the brethren from our local meeting. He led me to a van in which were several other brethren, including one of my uncles. After what seemed like hours, we arrived at the suburban home of the brother, his three spinster sisters, bachelor brother and ancient mother. I was taken down to the basement, which was to be my home for the foreseeable future. I felt anxious. Where was mum? She would be along later. Where was dad? He was unclean. I should not wish to be with him. Later, as I was tucked up on an old settee, I tried not to cry. One of the sisters read me Bible stories to help me fall asleep. A few days later, Mum arrived. She told me that the brethren were rescuing me because Dad had left them after a disagreement over doctrine. The ministry from the latest leader, Jim Taylor Jr. in the United States, stated brethren could no longer eat or drink with outsiders. Dad thought it wrong that he could not share even a cup of tea with his elderly widowed mother who lived with us but belonged to a milder sect. When he stood up in the meeting and said he disagreed, he was excommunicated. As the weeks passed, I missed my father dreadfully. Unbeknown to me, he had made me a ward of court, so the family became uneasy at giving us refuge and eventually Mum took me home. I can remember Dad returning early from work, bringing a panet of strawberries to welcome me back. I sat on his lap and sobbed. 
The nightmare was not over, though. For the next decade, life carried on much as before, but with one big difference. Mum would not eat or sleep with Dad and would barely speak to him. I was often used as an intermediary, with each trying to persuade me the other was wrong. My best friend at school comforted me when I was desperate with worry that my mother would die during her fasts, when she didn't eat for days in the hope that the Lord would answer her prayers and bring Dad back to the path of righteousness. My worldly, unclean school friends were very sympathetic and tried to bridge the gaps in my experience by carefully recounting theirs. Sometimes I secretly watched TV or listened to records with them on the way home from school. Once they daringly arranged for me to see a film to kill a mockingbird at the local cinema during school hours. Meanwhile, Jim Taylor Jr.'s edicts became increasingly bizarre. Sisters had to wear their hair hanging down their backs, covered in a headscarf. All adult brethren must be married. And then he started to go to bed with married sisters, supposedly showing how pure he was. Eventually, in 1970, at a meeting in Aberdeen, Scotland, he appeared drunk and stated that his word was of such consequence that the Bible was no longer necessary. A bombshell that caused a number of clearer-sighted brethren to protest and break away. By this time, it was too late for me to care. I was in my late teens and, to the horror of my family, left for university shortly afterwards. There, I ate chips and curry for the first time, openly read newspapers and novels, drank wine, wore normal clothes, listened to pop music and cut my hair. Being unclean was delightful. My mother may have disapproved, but she too left the Taylorites after the Aberdeen incident, joining instead the same sect as my father and grandmother. She remained strictly religious for the rest of her life, which inevitably caused the gulf between us, but I was able to spend time with her towards the end of her life. In the cult I left behind, Taylor died an alcoholic. Another universal leader stepped into his shoes, and the brethren now even run their own schools. My salvation was that I was able to mix with normal children at school and see for myself that so-called worldly people were actually often decent and kind. My heart bleeds for the current children in the exclusive brethren who are kept even more separate than I was. What hope do they have of escape? When I read about these things happening from 1960 to 1970, it makes me grateful to have been born into a relatively freer exclusive brethren group, the one with exactly the same roots. When these people from much more legalistic brethren groups speak in newspaper or television interviews or write books or put up websites and forums, they get sued and receive cease and desist orders from very expensive lawyers. I have never suffered such a thing, though people repeatedly ask me to stop discussing these matters, of course. I was once told a thing I'd written was a burr under the saddle of the Church of God. I was amused at the idea that the Church has a saddle. No doubt Cowboy Jesus rides us when he's out roping steers and the tumbling tumbleweeds. It makes me think it would be worthwhile to understand more about exactly how groups of Christians become slaves of legalism. What makes Christians give up their Christian liberty? What makes them submit to some guy or a couple of guys for no good reason? How does the non-church, with no formal leadership and no written rules, turn into a cult, I wondered. Divisions often serve that function, getting rid of people who aren't going to submit to the crap, figuring out who will bow to the authors of division. Dan reports that a 1980s Renton Brethren division in America was over allowing TV and radio, as the Renton exclusive brethren are not allowed either. 
There was also a small division in the early 1990s over the issue of a person volunteering to fight fires in the Australian bush. It was deemed wrong because he might be part of a volunteer fireman's association. It was apparently wrong to associate with an association and with non-believers. The person concerned was withdrawn from as unfit for fellowship. When, quite rightly, some people raised their head above the parapet to complain and disagree with this unbiblical decision, they were told to toe the line or leave. So a small number of others left as the truth of what happened became known from Australia, the UK and the USA. The way that Renton Exclusive Brethrenism works is that members must agree to upholding every assembly decision made across the one universal Renton Brethren position. You can't disagree openly with a disciplined decision and still remain in fellowship. However, what tends to happen is that facts are withheld from being made fully public, so the vast majority of the members have no real clue about the whys and wherefores of a decision and why persons leave or what the issues are. In each case, the division serves to see who will put up at the heightened level of legalism. Dan continues, Currently there is much division and acrimony among Raver, Taylor and Renton exclusive brethren over the issue of marriage. Renton E.B. left the main group in 1970 and followed the teaching of Darby, Raven, James Taylor Sr. and some James Taylor Jr. Renton exclusive brethren cannot marry outside the group even if the other person is a Christian going to a genuine Christian church. Any family relatives or friends not in fellowship i.e. not members, of the Renton EB cannot be invited to or attend the wedding reception meal to eat with the rest of the Renton EB, even though it is permitted to attend the civil wedding ceremony. These sectarian rules cause deep divisions between family and friends, spreading to whole meetings. Any flouting of these rules results in repentance being required, and some are withdrawn from, that is, cast out of the fellowship as unfit for not following the truth. This can has and is, creating deep soul and spiritual harm. These and other associated rules originate from teachings of James Taylor Sr. and the disgraced, immoral, alcoholic James Taylor Jr. It was James Taylor Sr. who taught marrying outside of his particular group weakened the fellowship and meant linking with dead bones, even if the person outside was a Christian. James Taylor Sr. also taught that marriage outside the group was not marriage in the Lord, and published a booklet called Marriage in the Lord. Renton exclusive brethren can be evasive in admitting the origin of these rules, as many just accept it's what we do, without searching for a real reason. Or many try to avoid the issue of men's teachings by attempting to justify these rules via the Bible. I had occasion to witness such an attempt recently. As one Renton E.B. brother repeated to me what he'd heard in a Bible reading using Nehemiah chapter 13 verses 23 to 31, the bit about not marrying foreign wives, as justification for not marrying Christians outside the Renton E.B. Even though the no eating with outsiders at the wedding reception meal was not explained. The ones who object have to leave or be put away from the Lord's table. The ones who stay are agreeing to legalism. I know that's how it goes in my own TW group, which only discourages TV, pop music, and marrying people outside our group, rather than excommunicating people for so doing. Mind you, they can discourage pretty hard, Laura points out, boycotting people's weddings and birthdays, not bothering with a bridal or baby shower for such a one, and so on. 
Publicly, on the internet, TW Brethren writer Bruce Anstey exhorts as to bowing to all of this huge-scale excommunication of members by the hundreds that we engage in when we have divisions. Matthew 18.20 also indicates this. It says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. The passive tense, are gathered, indicates that a power beyond their own has gathered them together unto the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The power is that of the Holy Spirit. He is the divine gatherer. But notice, not only does the Spirit gather believers unto the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, but that he gathers them together unto his name. This refers to a practical unity, and we learn from other scriptures that this practical unity is not just in the locality where those believers meet. It refers to believers in other assemblies who are similarly gathered on that same ground. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, 4 verse 17, 5 verses 3 and 4, 10 verses 16 and 17, 11 verse 16, 14 verses 33 and 34, and 16 verse 1. Binding decisions made in one assembly are to be acknowledged and bowed to in the other assemblies, so that the truth of the one body will be practically expressed on earth. If one local assembly should make a binding decision in putting someone away from its fellowship, the body at large is to act in fellowship with that local assembly and recognize the decision. They are to bow to the judgment made in that local assembly so that the person put away is regarded as without in other gatherings too, not just in the locality where he resides. We see this in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 13, where the local assembly at Corinth was to put away that wicked person from their midst. But 2 Corinthians 2 and 6 tells us that the rebuke was inflicted by the many. The many here refers to the body at large, as J. and Darby's translation footnote indicates, citing 2 Corinthians 9 and 2 as an example of its usage and meaning. Hence the offender is made to feel the rebuke by more than just his local assembly. This shows that a binding decision made in one local assembly is really made on behalf of the body at large. What is done in the name of the Lord in one local assembly should affect the whole in practice. It is one of the ways the church is to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and thus give expression to the truth that there is one body, Ephesians 4 and 3. In Practice from ground zero, the thing Brother Anstey is mandating looks like this every single friggin' time. George gets angry with William and says everyone has to kick William out or he, George, will just leave, taking the ball and as many people as he can, and therefore the game, with him. Screw you guys, he's going home. The assembly is sharply divided in half over the matter, with George's supporters saying they've suddenly decided, with the Lord's leading of course, that they must very sadly put William out and the other side saying they certainly have not decided that, nor do they see the Lord's leading in it. As far as they're concerned, William's still in, but George is causing trouble. George's side sends a letter to nearby assemblies announcing that an assembly decision has been reached putting William away, and asking for support in this by said nearby assemblies not allowing William or any of his followers to take communion, speak up in Bible discussions, preach, receive funds for preaching, or any of that. So William's side sends a letter saying that no assembly decision has been reached, William is not put away, and it's just George and two other guys trying to claim that on their own, guys who now need to be put away for their actions. And the other assemblies around the world, 
almost always decide to announce they are bowing to the assembly decision to put William out and that it's not their business to interfere by, for instance, asking questions or allowing William to take communion when visiting his sister in an assembly in another town. Unquestioned legalism wins. Kicking out wins. Always. And then William's gone, along with 60% of the congregation. Half of that 60% stop regularly attending any church at all. It's a big game of divide and conquer. Together we stand, divided we fall. We fall, we fall, we fall. George Carlin, a man with a gift for disturbing and graphic imagery that almost rivals Ezekiel's, would describe this as one, one big, big dick-waving dick prick fight. Less colorfully, Reinhold Niebuhr says... Ultimately, evil is done not so much by evil people, but by good people who do not know themselves and who do not probe deeply. I wish I could tell you it was not true that TWs have had divisions and kicked out men over things such as whether the blood that flowed from the Lord Jesus' nail wounds was part of the blood that saved us, or if it was only the blood from the spear thrust in his side that did that, and any other teaching was a denial of Christ's divinity. I wish I could tell you that no one ever divided over that, but I can't. While finishing up my time at university, the other university students and I got a front row seat on our first local division in Nepean, 40 minutes drive from my house. It tore up my entire culture worldwide. Suddenly, it didn't matter so much if Brother Jones and his lovely wife were preaching the word in Guyana, Colombia, and Ecuador. Suddenly, it was more important which Ottawa-Canada group they sided with. Nepean is a suburb of Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. And the Joneses were required to take a side immediately. And the other side would certainly stop sending them any money to continue their work for the Lord. Important, then, to choose the faction with enough members left to be able to afford to support your, that is, the, the Lord's work. So the decision as to which side had managed to maintain their white-knuckled grip on the Lord's table and which side had wandered off in independency and rebellion to set up a mere human system or table of devils was carefully made. Every brethren-funded missionary had to make it. Quite coincidentally, missionaries almost always decided to affiliate with whichever side would retain the largest number of funds contributing members, and wrote letters and did other things to try to keep the winning side bigger than the other one. I have personally phoned missionaries who were, to my mind, meddling in the choices of young people as to the whole should I stay or should I go question during a division. The 2002 Nepean one, the Fifty Shades of David Gray one. I was quite troubled to hear these men claim they were just cancelling that young people remain neutral, that they themselves were remaining neutral, and that I should remain neutral as well, that scripture gave us no other alternatives other than to remain neutral and be quiet. Let the Lord deal. Having been put out of fellowship to perpetuity and therefore unafraid of repercussions, I have shared with these distant, respected men my own take on it sitting here at Ground Zero. I have explained that when the central issue is, was, was an, assembly an assembly decision, decision reached, reached or, or not, not, it is hardly neutral to advise all the unmarrieds and young marrieds in North America, South America, and Europe to simply, simply bow, bow to, to this, this very, very solemn assembly, assembly decision, decision, regardless of what their own consciences, prayer conversations, and their understanding of the scriptures might say. I have been told that I'm not making any sense at all, that we all need to just bow to the assembly decision. 
even if it wasn't made by an assembly which was demonstrably unable to decide anything, even if the fact that a division took place at all is ample evidence that no assembly decision ever took place. I have also been told that as we have no official leadership, if a guy who just happens to have spent most of his adult life working as a missionary living on donations just happens to voice his views on the matter in a letter addressed to young people, he's remaining neutral and advising the same, and that when said letter just happens to be photocopied and distributed all over the world, nothing official has happened and it's not really a matter of anyone exerting any influence at all, because clearly there is no influence that can be exerted. After all, more than one of these men, funded by donations from across the globe, has told me that he's just a guy, you know? No title or official position. So a letter, distributed all over the eastern seaboard and into Mexico and Maritime Canada and the U.S.? Not them exerting any influence at all. The fact that some people have been shocked that I had the courage to engage these men at all and others strongly disapproved of them having to explain themselves to the likes of me, tends to count against that position, tends to clearly outline just how influential these guys are. They're not Bruce Hales, but it's not like they're just my dad or only the men who taught me Sunday school or anything. I am more than willing to believe that these men are just as in denial about their level of influence as they are clearly upset when they aren't granted it. But they tell me they're just normal, out-of-country guys advising people to be neutral about various assembly decisions that have supposedly been decided in my own backyard, so to speak. I'm afraid I have always felt that this view was best summed up in the expression bullshit, not that I worded my responses to these neutral gentlemen in that way. The lesson to my generation has always been clear. Even 45 years of age is too young to have an opinion in these matters be quiet or get booted. As for me, I kept pretty quiet until I got booted. Never dared have a newsletter, webpage, blog, book, or anything of that nature. Now, I don't have to live under that fear. I am free. We were always told to let the Lord deal with these matters, and we did nothing, so the Lord did deal. Generally speaking, the candlestick was removed long ago in terms of any divine light being shed on the surrounding community by T.W. Brethren in the Ottawa area. People are not flocking to the Brethren groups in the Ottawa Valley to learn about Jesus. The outflux happened, and no subsequent influx has ever been nearly that size. Nowadays, the large group of teenagers I used to go to youth group with are scattered to every church you can imagine, and many have stopped going to any church altogether. Their families decided they would not put up with all that assembly decision crap the rest of us would. Clearly their f*** it fail-safes work better than ours. So they disassociated themselves, joining more moderate Christian groups, starting new ones, or most frequently stopping going to any church at all. The one thing that almost all of us retain in common is that we all claim we were, and continue to be, right. Lofty Claims it seemed like every older man who wanted status in our group and every young man looking to get serious about our culture got into prophecy. Stuff from Daniel and Revelation. Connecting newspaper reports of unrest in the Middle East with Bible stuff. Thing is, despite all of this interest in prophecy, I don't remember anyone prophesying about our group being about to blow up. 
nothing about the spiritual reasons why it was going to happen, no applying of relevant scriptures to our current spiritual state, no exhortations to repent of this path we were on. Nothing like that. Just stuff about Syria and Egypt. Mostly stuff that in the 80s never happened. In fact, when this is pointed out today, decades later, people who clearly pride themselves on the importance of prophecy are very quick and angry to point out that any form of prophecy which relates to us today and our groups and how we're behaving and what will befall us in the near future, stuff like the messages to the seven churches in Revelation or the word of God to Israel in the Old Testament, isn't true prophecy at all, because God's prophetic clock stopped once the Bible was done being written anyway, right when the Apostle John put that period at the end of Revelation chapter 22 and closed the Bible. And so our system blindly tore itself to pieces with vicious, unprincipled, stuffy, sanctimonious, scripture-slinging infighting, and today, almost nothing of what it once was remains. The large Ottawa Nepean meeting hall is locked, and grass grows up through the cracks in the asphalt of the enormous empty parking lot. Only little fragmentary groups are left here and there for the most part. Many towns that once had a brethren group in them no longer do. Most repopulation of the remaining brethren assemblies post-division has been done solely via vagina. And the more people wander off the more some of those who remain can feel they truly must be even more blessed to have remained with the right group, considering how few people have stuck it out. Last man seated is the name of the game. They're just being obedient, you understand, bowing and submitting to the assembly decision those two guys had lovingly and wisely forced down their assembly's throats, and then the throats of brethren across literally the entire globe. Decisions regarding lovingly kicking out a guy who said he objected to having stuff rammed down his throat and there being so much kicking out of people by two or three guys to begin with. When I was a teenager, there was something called the List of Gatherings. Our home had one, like most. It was suspiciously like a membership list. I know my name came right out of it the year I was kicked out anyway. It was a little white binder, and it had little pages with lists of all the TW Brethren folks' addresses, mainly in Canada and the U.S. It had contact info for a pair of men in each assembly who no one really wanted to name as elders outright, but who were the guys you contacted. Darlene tells me that she saw the list of gatherings this month, despite the usual warning label on it, saying not to let it fall into the hands of outsiders like her. Darlene says it's no longer a binder and is now just a pamphlet. I feel very deeply for those names still in there, some of whom are living lives in abject terror of losing their place in that pamphlet somehow. And then there are all those people I meet whose names are no longer written in that book which lists who the gathered saints are, people who did stuff and got ungathered, people who feel they fell short because they didn't have what it takes. Often they are angry that anyone like me would say anything bad about the meeting because they feel it's a really good place that's right about most things. It's just that they themselves can't walk that narrow path. They're willing to be wrong to keep the TW meeting right, because it's an anchor of some kind in their heads, the high watermark of spirituality that they fell short of, as close to ideal as a Christian group can get, though no church is perfect, of course. Very serious to speak ill of it, because after all, who are we to judge? 
It's certainly not a dwindling global collection of meeting rooms of straw built on the shifting foundations of claiming to do things in a more scriptural way than all the other Christian groups. It's the expression of God's church. The latter is quite a claim. One of the things this division and the following ones really did was shine a big spotlight on all of our claims, the claims as to why we were supposedly meeting five times a week to begin with. Were we really together for everyone's benefit, for struggling Christians, to feed Christ's lambs? Were we together to be a safe place for seeking souls to come and find Jesus? Were we together because we loved God and each other? Were we together to serve and obey the Bible? Or were we together, like the Pharisees, so we could try to be known as the only right Bible-following group with higher standards of piety and doctrinal correctness? The best thing I hear about from my Wi-Fi-equipped hermit's cave nowadays is that the new crop of younger brethren people routinely socialize with Christians from other unaffiliated brethren groups or even from more mainstream churches. They'll meet up with unaffiliated Christians to enjoy hockey, concerts, movie nights, video games, going on trips, whatever. Might even check out each other's churches a bit. So long as they don't take communion in them, they're not likely to get kicked out of their own. And I think that's great. I think it's more important than anyone suspects. Christian connection, love, joy, unity in fun. And as I said, the New Testament talks about people causing divisions in groups of Christians, about marking them and avoiding them. But I think these division situations, which scandalized the apostles back in the day, were about the Christians in a given area having internal factions, schools of thought among them, cliques that caused disagreement within their group, which made them not terribly united, though they were certainly still meeting in the same place. Each place, no doubt, had people from all sides of whatever the debate was, Paul's people, Apollo's followers, even those who most arrogantly claimed they were, unlike the other two groups, on Christ's side. I don't think, despite the condemnation rained on them by the apostles, that these first-century church situations had ever, in most cases, gone anywhere near the point of what we view as normal church stuff today. I don't think in the first century you'd see the Christians in Crete who meet on Broad Street not talking to the other Christians in Crete who meet around the corner on 2nd Avenue at Diana. We've gone from there being seven affiliated churches in the entirety of Asia Minor to there being 10 unaffiliated churches in a town of 4,000 people, none of which can fill up a third of their building, which we tend to see as progress. What it is, is a shining testimony to disunity and our selfish need to have everything go our way or we're moving up the street or kicking you out, or both. I don't think apostles wrote separate epistles to separate groups of Cretans. I don't think there were divided assemblies only accepting epistles from apostles who took a clear stand for the one group and against their opponents. Yet we see this kind of thing as quite normal nowadays, or normal enough that we will continue in it, and we certainly plan to do nothing else. I've had trouble even conveying the idea that maybe it's weird for two churches to be seen by everyone sitting right across the street from each other bold as brass or just up the street or around the corner from each other, like Burger King and McDonald's competing for customers Sunday morning, just as if they had no one in common, certainly no one who'd specifically said not to act exactly the way they are acting. In fact, an attitude I've often heard is that people in different churches feeling no obligation to have anything much to do with one another is just normal and not a failure to love or be united at all. Reminds me of the 60s in the American South, 
You'd have the white Christian church and the black Christian church not far from each other, steeples in the air, announcing to the sky some connection to the Bible, yet white Christian churches were not even allowing African-American Christians in the front doors, let alone obeying scriptural injunctions for the two groups of Christians to be known by their love for each other. I think we're like that nowadays, only with far less obvious distinctions than race, stuff like doctrine and worship style and positions on various things, politics. You can come in the door, but in many churches, if you want to connect or help out or partake in any real way in what goes on in there, you have to join that church, which is as exclusive as a marriage. We're all segregated by membership lists, written or unwritten, brethren or non-brethren groups alike. I don't see what it all has to do with God. I think something else is going on entirely, something all too human and dubious, something that takes from our week as much time and thought cycles as will give it our money, too. What's driving it? A need to be special and right, I believe, that is so powerful that one will pay in relationship to feed that need, with as many other Christians being ostracized and driven away by one's own preferences as necessary. Dan writes, The scripture-twisting legalism, the claiming men's ideas to be divine principles, and the rampant confusion that goes on in exclusive brethren groups in particular is deeply damaging. It saddens me that those who claim to hold such high standards of Christianity can succeed in turning persons away from Christ altogether. The attitude of a few, I admit a tiny minority, who have left the Renton exclusives is, well, if that's Christianity, I don't want anything to do with it. The sad thing is that what they have experienced is not the Christianity taught in the Bible. But, after years, sometimes generations, of imbibing sectarian, toxic, exclusive doctrines, it's difficult for them because they view the unlearning and relearning process as too onerous. W. H. Griffith Thomas famously said, The brethren are remarkable people for rightly dividing the word of truth and wrongly dividing themselves. Cute turn of phrase, but I no longer believe that a group can rightly divide the word of truth, yet still carry on the way we do. I think to carry on in our way getting church divorces every time there is a spat of any kind requires one to have a very messed up and incomplete understanding of and parsing up of everything the Bible has to say about love, which is an awful lot. We not only have unjudged evil among us, we've made it policy, and we demand your support when we do it. We seem almost 100% immune to ironies like a faction of a church divorcing the rest of the group for allowing a man who divorced his wife to worship there. God joins together many things besides happy couples. Profiling them that cause divisions. The scripture says to mark them that cause division and avoid them and walk not with them. I have actually taken the time to profile them in order to help us all do this. People fueling the conservative wing of the division-causing and who are going to cling to their seats while annoying and upsetting everyone else into leaving are predictably characterized by number 1. More focus than anyone else on suppressing women and the young and adjusting their behavior, demeanor, dress, and deportment. Number 2. More focus than anyone else on prophecy, by which they mean applying the Bible to current and excitingly fiery and dire future events, rather than bringing a message from the Lord to Christian communities about their current state and choices being made. 
like Heath Ledger's Joker in The Dark Knight, these men want to watch the world burn and seem tempted to let a match here and there to hurry things along. Number three, an inability to entertain anything other than black and white thinking with clear antagonism toward any discussion that involves nuances or shades of meaning. Number four, lack of a sense of humor, especially about themselves or anything they do or believe. Number five, extremely narrowed range of topics they are able or willing to discuss with others. Six, vastly altered personality from that of the person they were when they were younger. Seven, far more comfort discussing sin, rules, the devil, sin, the flesh, the world, sin, and hell than they are discussing liberty, spiritual health, love, grace, mercy, or forgiveness, except as extremely theoretical topics. Number eight, increasingly idiosyncratic and utterly arbitrary applications of biblical symbolism to whatever they feel like applying it to. Number nine, an increasing inability to see anything the way anyone with even a slightly different outlook sees it and not be derisive, angry, and threatened by said slightly different outlook. Number 10, a wolfish effort to cull the flock of less hardcore sheep to make it more pure, thereby scattering the flock. And number 11, a willingness to talk about the Bible all the time, yet somehow very little of it ends up being about Jesus if you really look at what's being said. Naturally, the modus operandi of these kinds of people is to blame their opposite, generally liberal numbers, for causing divisions. Easier, therefore, to cast these folks away as rank liberals. The liberal population, for its part, is more likely to dissolve into other churches eventually. Liberals leave over hurt feelings or social awkwardness. Conservatives will fight to the death over nothing. So despite the clear fact that they routinely and unthinkingly suppressed a whole lot of Christian liberty and personal choice, and that they pulled all manner of strings in terms of kangaroo court shady backroom dealings and eventually wrote and signed the letters putting people out and demanding support for the assembly decision they themselves made, the guys still sitting in the chairs will say the people they kicked out were causing trouble, that all the kicking out was necessary for the peace and to keep unity. Once again, I am reminded of the statement that every group of Plymouth Brethren has a momentum toward eventually becoming a group of a single, especially correct person. Repenting of the One Place Doctrine The super-duper magic one right place for saints obedient to Scripture to be our gathered at doctrine died hard with me. It took a long, long time. It was part of my identity and had been almost since birth. I wasn't sure at first how to be a Christian without it. Like a lot of other brethren, I wanted to feel like I was where I was because it was the only place to be, that there was no other choice, that God had decided this matter for me, and I was simply being obedient, just following orders. It made things simple to think that way. Otherwise, how would you know where to go? Hard on the heels of this question followed a more difficult one. What if there is no right place? What if our dividedness isn't okay? What if it's bad doctrine and a falling away from vital truth regarding unity? What if God's approval doesn't fall on either of the sides which divided from each other just so people could have their own way? What if the whole way we gather in our tiny groups on Sundays with no real connection to the rest of the church in our area is human, flawed, and broken? A failure of unity and love. What if it's contrary to scripture? 
What if it's something we'll answer for one day? It was tough, but over time I really had to rethink, repenser, the whole idea. Henry's Pamphlet Henry de Graaf, who left or was kicked out or stayed where he was while the Brethren wandered away in the 1991 division, has been working on a pamphlet for decades. He went over quotes from the early Brethren writers which Jim Morris had presented to their TW Assembly in an attempt to question the closed fellowship of the place. Henry felt these quotes showed that our founding fathers would have been utterly against the modern form of brethren closeness and exclusivity that Gospel Hall, T.W., Renton's, and Taylor Hale's alike all practice. Darby, Kelly, Mackintosh, Rule, Potter, and the rest, they all shared a horror of sects and sectarianism, of mere churches, of acting like them and forming exclusive groups with membership lists and a process for admitting people to the list before being willing to accept them as Christians who want to worship God. Reading these quotes from the big guys really show that the very reason for having a Plymouth Brethren to begin with had been subverted long before it existed in the form I grew up knowing. Henry got James Morris to format his pamphlet in Word Perfect and then later put me to work on it anonymously too. Association with my name would certainly be of no help to him in trying to get brethren people to read it. I rewrote bits of it until I liked it, integrating the quotations in larger sentences just as I require high school students to do with Of Mice and Men, Lord of the Flies, 1984, and The Great Gatsby. Henry was asked, advised, or, or wished not to include my name in the pamphlet as it was felt my name being in there would limit who the pamphlet would reach and who it could be easily shared with given my controversial position in the Ottawa area. I asked him if he was ashamed of my chain. There have been other revisions of the pamphlet since. I think Henry will work on that pamphlet forever and still not convince the various brethren groups he grew up knowing to break bread with him. He left, after all, or so they say. Henry says they left. It's clear that they left behind the attitudes seen in the writing of the fathers of the movement before things came down to brass tacks in it. Henry says he will keep adding and changing bits as the Lord leads him to. Fair enough. I'll just put what I worked on with him here. You can listen to it if you like, or skip past it. It's here to show exactly what Darby and Kelly and the others would think of the kind of exclusion from worship unless we admit you to an unwritten membership list practice I grew up being taught was the intention of the First Brethren. Here's Henry. Keep the unity of the Spirit, Ephesians 4, 1-6. When the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, the state of affairs that existed then was very serious. Asia had turned away from Paul, 2 Timothy 1, 15. So his instruction to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 was thus. 1. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 2. Commit to faithful men what he had heard from Paul. 3. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, and not to entangle himself with the affairs of this life. 4. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Timothy was also instructed to follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. 2.22 That instruction was given to a man of God. 6.11 in a great house, 
where existed not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and earth, some to honor and some to dishonor. He was to purge himself from these to be fit for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21. By isolating these scriptures, the TWs and other exclusive brethren have set aside the clear necessity to keep the unity of the Spirit. What can and is so easily forgotten, the need to have grace, to walk worthy with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4, 1-6. What we also need is spiritual discernment and power to obey all of those verses as true members of the body of Christ. Why must those latter verses remain unheeded? Do the so-called gathered saints have a right to claim that they have a unity from the Spirit that can be seen in their dealings with one another? Do they have any real testimony of unity today collectively, which can clearly be seen by those looking on? What would it mean to lose this unity, rather than obeying the clear injunction in Scripture to keep it? What kind of acts or conduct would deny it and sacrifice it to expediency? The purpose of this book is to present the practical truth of the unity of the Spirit as brethren once taught it from the Scriptures and as it applies to all believers. In 1882, William Kelly, writing for the Bible Treasury, stressed the importance of the unity of the Spirit by writing, The unity of the Spirit is a constant responsibility for the children of God to keep with diligence as long as they are upon the earth. He abides with us forever. To keep it, therefore, is always a paramount duty. In 1897, A.H. Rule, writing in a similar vein, said, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. This is a simple exhortation, a thing to be carried out in connection with the state of all lowliness and meekness with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. To keep the unity of the Spirit is not an impossibility. It is possible, by the grace of God, let it not be said that this unity cannot be kept, for it can. Grace the Power of Unity and Gathering Acts 17.11-242-47 Much has been written to correct wrong ideas pertaining to what exactly brings about and maintains unity. Godly brethren who devoted their lives to teaching and ministering in the assemblies of believers gathered to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ sought by the power of the Holy Spirit to maintain this unity in grace. Let us see what they believed and taught as they understood the word of God. We will examine in particular how these brethren handled the reception of godly Christians. The reader is encouraged to read all of the sources quoted as well as the scriptures to test what is given here. That ye may with one accord with one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive you one another, according as the Christ also has received you to the glory of God. Romans 15, 6-7, J&D Translation. John Nelson Darby, for example, wrote, The active power that gathers is always grace, love. Separation from evil may be called for, but this in itself is never a gathering power. Power to gather is in grace, in love working. If you please, faith working by love in Galatians 5 verse 6. Besides, 
Grace alone fully reveals God, and hence, without grace, that to which we are to be gathered is not manifested. It is clear from this excerpt that Mr. Darby was teaching that separation from evil, though a necessity, is not what is actually meant to unite believers. While doctrinal and ecclesiastical correctness is necessary, it is not a gathering power like the grace of the Holy Spirit. And when we neglect our responsibility to keep the unity of the Spirit, Ephesians 4, 1-7, we lose the enjoyment of a peace from God that comes with it. We are gathered by and to a good, rather than against an error. Too often believers have attempted to define their unity by uniting against believers, with whom they hold differences of opinion. They cannot do so without becoming yet another sect. The reception of godly believers, even those still connected with some other church fellowship, was always the custom of those early brethren. Brethren did not wish to become a sect, and so they differentiated themselves from other communities of Christians by keeping no membership lists and receiving to the Lord's table all godly Christians regardless of a church affiliation. They feared carrying on in any way, lest they become yet another Christian sect or, quote, church. This is evident in the following statement by A.H. Rule. It has been the custom of those gathered to the Lord's name from the first to receive at the Lord's table known godly souls who were in sound doctrine and upright in walk, even though still connected with some system and this without raising the question of their breaking bread with such system. They love the Lord, are sound in the fundamental doctrines of Christianity, are godly in their walk, perhaps more so than many who have correct views of ecclesiastical truths, and they recognize that the table at which we break bread is the Lord's table, though they may think the same of other tables which are sectarian. The Lord has received them, and he appreciates, if we do not, their desire to remember him. Why should we raise a barrier to such? Why exclude them, or at least make the condition so hard that they cannot participate without being rude? I fear there is at the one assembly too hard a front on this line of things, raising barriers which place the meeting almost on sectarian ground. Again, even as late as 1903, Walter Potter echoed the same sentiment, saying, It would surely not be of the Lord to require of a godly, exercised soul connected with any of the, what we may call, orthodox denominations, that he sever his connection with his church before we allow him to participate with us at the table. And to do this, it seems to me, is to practically deny the ground upon which we are gathered. Jan Darby had written similarly in 1869, saying, The question is, as to the reception of saints who partake of the table of the Lord with us, whether any can be admitted who are not formally and regularly amongst us. Suppose a person known to be godly and sound in faith, who has not left some ecclesiastical system, nay, thinks scriptures favor an ordained ministry, but is glad when the occasion occurs. Suppose we alone are in the place or he is not in connection with any other body in the place, staying with a brother or the like, is he to be excluded because he is of some system as to which his conscience is not enlightened, nay, which he may think more right? He is a godly member of the body, known such, 
Is he to be shut out? If so, the degree of the light is the title to communion, and the unity of the body is denied by the assembly which refuses him. The principle of meeting as members of Christ walking in godliness is given up. Agreement with us is made the rule, and the assembly becomes a sect with its members like any other. They meet on their principles, Baptist or other, you on yours, and if they do not belong to you formally as such, you do not let them in. The principle of brethren's meetings is gone, and another sect is made, say, with more light, and that is all. In another letter, Darby furthered this point, adding the interesting view that such a visiting Christian would be subject to discipline, even though not in fellowship or a member there, those two concepts being utterly foreign to Mr. Darby's understanding of scriptural gathering. The principle of meeting is the unity of the body, so that a person known as a Christian is free to come. Only the person who introduces him should have the confidence of the assembly as to his competency to judge of the person he introduces. A person breaking bread is thereby subject to the discipline of God's house if called for, just as if he had been constantly there. Nor do I accept any condition from them as that they are free to go anywhere. The assembly is to follow God's word and can bind itself by no condition, nor do I impose any, because as the assembly is bound by the word and can accept none, so is the person subject to the discipline of the assembly according to the word. Falsifying the Testimony of Christ in the Assembly What does this mean? In another letter, Mr. Darby vigorously denied the idea that assemblies could even have a membership in the form of who is in fellowship and who is out of fellowship. He wrote, When persons break bread, they are in the only fellowship I know, owned members of the body of Christ. The moment you make another full fellowship, you make people members of your assembly, and the whole principle of meeting is falsified. William Kelly, writing in 1882, condemned the practice of turning godly members of Christ's body away from the Lord's table as a work of Satan, attempting to undermine the testimony of Christ to create a sect. For a long time, Satan has been endeavoring to falsify the testimony of Christ among those professedly gathered to his name. One of his wiles has been, under the pretense of light and righteousness, to undermine grace and truth in recognizing freely the members of Christ's body. Utterly misconceiving the stand against neutrality, they would make no Christian welcome to the Lord's table who did not judge his old position by more or less intelligence of the one body and one spirit. That is, without a virtual pledge, never again to enter the so-called church or chapel. This is, to my mind, not unbelief only, but a bad and base principle. It is an underhand way to make a sect of those that know the church, but really to prove how little they themselves appreciate the one body, else they would not let knowledge override relationship to Christ as they do. And those who are most wrong are apt to talk most loudly of that which they really imperil or unwittingly annul. 
Allowing known believers to break bread while still identified with another church fellowship was at one time commonplace practice, and a practice wholly unfamiliar today to many who claim to be gathered to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and who wish to be seen as something other than just another church. But today they do have a membership, just like the rest. After looking at the ministry of Mr. Darby and of others a century ago, and seeing so little of it practiced today, it is a healthy exercise to ask, why the change? What would these brethren have written today? Would they not have seen modern brethren as a sect? Some suggested Mr. Darby had changed his mind on it later in life, but no, he said, I have never changed my views at all. C.H. McIntosh then clearly expresses the reason we need to properly understand and to be able to answer this matter in the light of Scripture, lest we do become a sect, writing that, The celebration of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper should be the distinct expression of the unity of all believers, and not merely of the unity of a certain number gathered on certain principles which distinguish them from others. If there be any term of communion proposed, save the all-important one of faith in the atonement of Christ, and a walk consistent with that faith, the table becomes a table of a sect, and possesses no claim upon the hearts of the faithful. And furthermore, if by sitting at the table I must identify myself with any one thing, whether it be principle or practice, not enjoined in scripture as a term of communion, there also the table becomes the table of a sect. For even as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of the body, being many, are one body, so also is the Christ. First Corinthians 12.12 12. J&D Translation. What is our authority for what we practice? It is not the purpose of this booklet to answer every issue that could be raised on reception. The various sources cited here are sufficient for that. The present purpose is only to help us to understand in their own words how the original brethren understood the scriptural principles of reception. Many consider the written ministry of these brethren as authoritative because of how their lives were lived, showing that they closely held to the authority of the word of God. Should not our hearts also then submit to the same scriptures that guided them? We must answer yes, for our heart's desire also ought to be to submit to the same scriptures that guided these godly brethren. The word of God alone must have authority over us, as it had over them. We most certainly need to be careful that our practice of reception is not just something we say we believe, an empty form, a formal routine, something we only pay lip service to. We need to be willing to live it. We will be judged not only on what we claim, but on what we do. If we neglect the central principles of Scripture, we will find ourselves following only the more recent traditions of men rather than the Word of God finding also that we have ceased being any sort of testimony to the unity of the body of Christ. It is vital that we consider these matters with a spiritual mind, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1, avoiding strife, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3, James 3, verse 17, and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to our hand, 2 Corinthians 10, 16, but rather as being taught by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 2, 11, and 13 to 15. For it is God who worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. 
Philippians 2.13, that ye may, with one accord, with one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another according as the Christ also has received you to the glory of God. Romans 15.6-7, J&D Translation. How do we glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Not by correcting error and judging evil, but by receiving one another, even as Christ has received us. Serious error indeed must be corrected, and evil must be judged, as other scriptures clearly teach. But the point of this scripture is that the reception of all his own glorifies the loving God and Father of all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Neither the correction of error nor the judging of evil is even mentioned anywhere in Romans chapter fifteen seven. Only the importance of receiving brethren with whom we may disagree. Top five justifications for exclusive reception. Number one, some think that if we allow a Christian from another church to worship with us, we will get defiled as the other churches are defiled, not sterile like we are. We must, therefore, exclude them or get contaminated by their inferior level of purity, both in their doctrine and in the lifestyles of those who are members. As to the idea that any believer who associates with another church group is thereby defiled, A.H. Rule said this, Our habit has been to receive a godly Baptist or Presbyterian and the like, but where the avowed creed of a sect involves wickedness, bad fundamental doctrine, or unmoral conduct, a person still connected with such would not be received. He must sever his connection with a position in which he supports such a creed before being received. Number two, some think that what is being discussed here is the error of open brethrenism, which error needs to be separated from. Specifically, A, some feel that the open brethren have left the original exclusive ground of Darby and Kelly and the rest in their new openness. A.H. Rule addressed the idea that this is an open brethren error by writing this. Nor is this the ground taken by the so-called open brethren. Some of their assemblies throw the door open to all Christians, especially to all professedly separate from system, and some are absolutely exclusive and refuse to receive anyone who does not first break with system. They, at least many of them, would break bread with us if we would receive them, showing they are ignorant of the principles of the one body and the unity of the Spirit. And then there's B. Others believe that closed or exclusive reception is the result of new truth, which was not known to Darby Kelly and the rest, who were gathering erroneously during the early days of the Brethren. Now we know that God wanted us to exclude other Christians all along. In 1882, toward the end of the first generation of the Brethren movement, William Kelly plainly showed that the notion of rejecting those from other groups had arisen in their day, but that these faithful early brethren were still, at that time, earnestly fighting against the error. Again, he writes, For a long time, Satan has been endeavoring to falsify the testimony of Christ among those professedly gathered to his name. One of his wiles has been, under the pretense of light and righteousness, to undermine grace and truth 
in recognizing freely the members of Christ's body, utterly misconceiving the stand against neutrality, they would make no Christian welcome to the Lord's table who did not judge his old position by more or less intelligence of the one body and one spirit. That is, without a virtual pledge, never again to enter the so-called church or chapel. This is, to my mind, not unbelief only, but a bad and base principle. It is an underhand way to make a sect of those that know the church, but really to prove how little they themselves appreciate the one body, else they would not let knowledge override relationship to Christ as they do. Number three. Some feel that a new Christian is ignorant and unlearned about separation from evil and must sit in the back in the seat of the unlearned until given a course of instruction as to Christian purity. A.H. Rule addressed this idea by writing, As to giving special purity instruction beforehand, this would be equivalent of telling her that her participation in the ordinance was not desired by the meeting. And... Of course, anyone of a sensitive disposition would, under the circumstances, refrain. Such a course of handling would, it seems to me, quite unfit any such one to participate in that joyous and holy feast to the edification of his or her soul. For his part, William Kelly argued strongly against making a requirement of what he calls ecclesiastical intelligence, also arguing that doing so results in the formation of a sect instead of relying on the Spirit to unite us. Far from looking for or valuing ecclesiastical intelligence before souls take their place at the Lord's table, it is quite a mistake for us to expect it. The moment the church lays down an extra scriptural test, she takes the place of the Lord, and there is practical assumption, yea, virtual denial of his authority. The result is to form a sect and departure from the unity of the Spirit. Number four. Some feel that someone asking to break bread with us who does not wish to permanently join us is clearly insincere in some way and is not calling on the Lord out of a pure heart and should therefore be excluded. As to the idea that only occasionally visiting an exclusive fellowship demonstrates a lack of a pure heart, Mr. Darby writes... There is no difference between breaking bread as a Christian and fellowship, though some may not always be there, because the only fellowship or membership is of the body of Christ. And if a person breaks bread and is thus recognized as a member of the body of Christ, he is subject to all the discipline of the house. I may not enforce constant attendance with us only, because he may come with the desire to show unity of the spirit, and yet think that his ways are more orderly, conscientiously. If his heart be pure, in 2 Timothy 2, I have no reason to exclude him, but if anything in his path require he should be excluded, he is liable to it like anyone else. If it was ignorance, and they came bona fide in the spirit of unity, to that which is the symbol of unity, I should not reject them, because... They had not, in fact, broken with it. In these recent days of brethren division, many have discovered a real desire for unity among foundationally-minded churches. On the subject of Reason 5, as well as 2 and 3, 
Mr. Darby wrote that he would not fellowship with an assembly which behaved in this way, arguing that this practice would have turned the assembly into a sect, saying this, If any assembly refuse a person known to be a Christian and blameless, because he was not of the assembly, I should not go. I own no membership but of Christ. An assembly composed of such of its members is at once a sect. Remember, you are acting as representing the whole church of God, and if you depart from a right path as to the principle of meeting, separating from it is to be a local sect on your own principles. We have already noticed both Darby and Kelly's use of the term falsify in reference to the principle of meeting and to the testimony of Christ. Falsify is a strong word, but here Mr. Darby goes even further. In one of his earliest articles on the subject, Darby argues that the concept of seeking the interest of any one particular group rather than the unity of all makes one an enemy of the work of the Spirit of God. True unity is the unity of the Spirit, and it must be wrought by the operation of the Spirit. He is an enemy to the work of the Spirit of God who seeks the interest of any particular denomination. And those who believe in the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ ought carefully to keep from such a spirit. Brethren who covet the truth and are being guided by the Spirit will easily recognize this failure among themselves. Further on in the same article, Darby condemns the concept and practice, the one that's so common today in this 21st century and seen as normal or usual by many, calling it a mental disease and as seeking their own rather than the things of the Lord. This is a most subtle and prevailing mental disease. He followeth not us, even when men are really Christians. Let the people of God see if they be not hindering the manifestation of the church by this spirit. Christians are little aware how this prevails in their minds, how they seek their own and not the things of Jesus Christ and how it dries up the springs of grace and spiritual communion, how it precludes that order to which blessing is attached, the gathering together in the Lord's name. Continuing in the same article, he declared that any group of Christians that did not practically embrace all the children of God would be unable to find fullness of blessing, saying this, No meeting which is not free to embrace all the children of God in the full basis of the kingdom of the Son can find the fullness of blessing because it does not contemplate it, because its faith does not embrace it. Some may see such statements by Darby to be rather extreme, but can we honestly expect anything other than a lack of fullness of blessing if we carry on in this way for reasons of expedience or if only to follow an established tradition? In another place, Mr. Darby argued that failing to receive all saints robs the force of an assembly decision to exclude any walking inappropriately, and that it represents error on the one side, destroying the unity, due to seeking to avoid the opposite extreme, allowing looseness in practice and doctrine. Writing, I seek no looseness, but Satan is busy to lead us to one side or the other to destroy the largeness of the unity of the body, or to make it mere looseness in practice or doctrine. We must not fall into one in avoiding the other, 
Reception of all true saints is what gives its force to the exclusion of those walking loosely. If I exclude all who walk godly as well, who do not follow with us, it loses its force, for those who are godly are shut out too. Continuing in the same letter, Mr. Darby also stressed that we are meant to be members not of our own body of brethren, nor of any assembly of it, but of Christ's body alone, saying, There is no membership of brethren. Membership of an assembly is unknown to Scripture. It is members of Christ's body. If people must be all of you, it is practically memberships of your body. The Lord keep us from it. That is simply dissenting ground. I should, if I came to your assembly, require clear evidence what ground you are meeting upon. There are now numerous divisions of brethren, with each group accepting members into its own body. Thus brethren, whose very origin was to stand against sectarianism, have degenerated into an endless assortment of microsects. This is made clear in 1 Corinthians, where the Apostle writes, I hear there exist divisions among you, and I partly give credit to it. For there must also be sects among you, that the approved may become manifest among you. 1 Corinthians 11, 18b-19, J&D Translation. From the way this is stated, it is plain that the divisions in that day had not progressed to the point of meeting separately, refusing or even casting out godly Christians, nor is there any hint of their turning away anyone from the Lord's table. These were divisions among in the middle of the group rather than fully separated groups having lost the unity of the spirit to a degree the people of the town would notice. It is plain that the New Testament church in Jerusalem, with its thousands of individual Christians, could never have met in a single room, yet they were always referred to as a single group. So also the churches in Rome, Corinth, and every other place mentioned in the New Testament, God recognized no division between godly Christians other than distance. Yet today, like all the churches they condemn, Brethren assemblies, separating themselves from all other Christians, refusing to so much as allow them to eat at what they claim is the Lord's table, while they know that these outsiders are godly members of the body of Christ, they remain content with themselves and their practice. But what do the scriptures say about these Christians they so boldly reject? Let a man prove or examine himself, and thus eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 1 Corinthians 11:28. J&D Translation. C.H. McIntosh, writing, If once for all it be asked what means the term approved, it may be answered. It is in the first place to be personally true to the Lord in the act of breaking bread, and in the next place to shake off all schism and take our stand firmly and decidedly upon the broad principles which will embrace all the members of the flock of Christ. We are not only to be careful that we ourselves are walking in the purity of heart and life before the Lord, but also that the table of which we partake has nothing connected with it that could at all act as a barrier to the unity of the church. Call not thou common or unclean. Our responsibility is to receive those whom Christ has received, 
thus giving glory to God, Romans 15:7. That principle is also presented in Acts 10 by God himself speaking to Peter, whose legal and sectarian traditions had to be corrected by a direct word. Previously, unable to freely bring the gospel of salvation to the Gentile Cornelius, Peter himself needed instruction, and to learn this lesson, do not call what God hath cleansed, common or unclean. Verse 28. Only then was he sent to speak to Cornelius words which thou and all thy house shall be saved. Acts 11.14. Peter was now free to say, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? Acts 10.47. Baptism, the first Christian ordinance, is for believers, and was not to be forbidden when clear evidence of salvation, Ephesians 1.13, was manifest. Likewise with the Lord's Supper, Nowhere in Scripture is it required or even suggested that the local company of believers should require a soul to wait or sit back when similar clear evidence or testimony can be given. It was no different even in the case of Saul. Are we to so dishonor our Lord by casting a shadow on the cleansing power of the precious blood of Christ in requiring souls to sit back and wait when they are known to be believers walking before God with a good conscience? Is not scriptural testimony enough? Is not the presence of the Lord in our midst sufficient to discern who are them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart? Mr. Darby taught that the assembly needs no lengthy or deep inquiry into a professed Christian sincerity, but should be satisfied with the testimony of a person or two writing this. The assembly has to be satisfied as to the persons, but as so receiving to break bread is supposed to be satisfied on the testimony of the persons introducing them who is responsible to the assembly in this respect. This, or two, or three visiting, is to me the question of inadequate testimony to the conscience of the assembly. Nobody comes in but as a believer. Early brethren rejected the concept of there being some godly Christians who are in fellowship with an assembly and other godly Christians who are not in fellowship with it. To them, this unscriptural distinction was sectarian, and nothing but a thinly veiled way of making membership with a specific group of believers a requirement before access to the Lord's table would be granted. The authors of division will always make this distinction, excluding any child of God, godly or otherwise, learned or ignorant, hailing from any other Christian group whatever. They wish to maintain a visible, though unwritten, sectarian membership requiring the exclusion of even godly Christians. They apply this exclusion equally to those who hold doctrines significantly different from their own and to those who value the same truths as they themselves, but who prayerfully feel they were mistaken in some internal squabble. If a person not in fellowship presents himself at a brethren sect of this sort, whether or not they are godly is seldom considered. The only thing that generally counts for fellowship is whether or not the person in question is in ecclesiastical allegiance with themselves and is thus gathered with their sect. Wherever this practice has surfaced, it should thus be painfully clear to all that the principle of gathering in the Lord's name rather than to a human organization or sect as held and practiced by brethren in the 1800s has been wholly abandoned. Wherever the practice of excluding known godly believers is prevalent, the question should be raised, on what ground do these brethren gather? 
What spirit is it that brings them together and unifies them? Are they maintaining the unity of the spirit in grace and love? What are they willing to sacrifice in order to triumph in petty human disputes? These disputes all spring from an inability to get along and demonstrate a lack of that grace and love enjoined in Scripture. Many brethren whom I personally know would be happy to share a meal with another godly believer. Why then should that same person be denied their place at the Lord's table on a Lord's Day morning? My sincere hope is that this pamphlet will be found to be helpful and not divisive. It is understood that these truths may take time to be understood and to be put into practice. Seek help only from the Holy Spirit as he reveals to you the scriptures and the heart of a king greater than David, who said, I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake. Second Samuel 9 verse 7. This pamphlet could be used to point brethren to truth that would help them to recover from their present state. By leaving a path of biblical simplicity to cling to traditions and division, many are seeing their adult children now leaving the meeting for various reasons. But this pamphlet was not intended to be used in a way that would cause internal conflict among the Lord's people. My hope is that it will be prayerfully used to awaken brethren to reconsider their practice of exclusion in the light of Scripture. The enemy has used our neglect or ignorance of the truths of Scripture to divide and nearly destroy what was once a testimony for his, that is Christ's name. We have helped the enemy by believing we can defend and protect what God has established using those feeble weapons of our flesh. May God deliver us from it. There is a wall up in the sanctuary that ought not to be there, a wall that does not guard the flock from the enemy we fear, whose destructive work has hindered so the good news message clear. This wall soon must come down. In fact, I saw it down somewhere. There's a wall up in the sanctuary of my heart too, I fear. A wall up in that sanctuary Surely it must come down there too. A wall that ought not to be there. Oh God, I've sinned in building here a wall that cannot honor him, but tend to make a heart grow cold. Taken from the poem Tearing Down Walls by Henry de Graaff.